this is the art of discussing where everyone is committed to having discussions with people sharing different points of view while respecting the person expressing them. We're your hosts. I'm Ben. And I'm Kate. And we're excited that you've joined us. Let's get to this week's episode. Welcome back to The Art of Discussing. I'm Kate. And I'm Ben. And today we have a great conversation about the constitutional conversation episode. So we're going to be talking, what is the Constitution? We hear a lot about it's unconstitutional, or that's not in the Constitution, or that is in the Constitution. So we're going to dive a little bit into that and get a baseline for what is the Constitution, what does it outline, what doesn't it outline, how detailed does it go, and we'll see how it goes. We may not cover any of that. We'll see how this goes. So we're going to talk to Dr. Doug Bradabo, and I'm going to have Ben introduce Doug and uh, talk a little bit more about uh, who our guest is today. Okay. Uh, joining us today is Dr. Doug Bradabo. Dr. Bradabo and I know each other from when I was going to my, my undergraduate education at the United States Naval Academy, uh, Dr. Bradabo was, I was a poli-sci major and I took his American presidency class. Uh, he's uh, a, I'm going to say uh, without, in, this is not on his bio, but I'm saying he's a, he's a constitutional super expert. I, that, that's a technical term. Such a thing exists as you can, it's in Webster, Miriam or Oxford. So one of those dictionaries. Um, and no he's, he's very, very knowledgeable about uh, our country, the way we got to the way we are, uh, the Constitution, where it comes from, our system of government, uh, to include all of its executives, the presidents, um, which I took his class, the American presidency back then. And um, he, you know, from a very young age, he, he has a very special love, uh, comes from a very special place. For our system of government. And I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that. Without further ado, Dr. Douglas Pradabo. Wow, that was really nice of you, Ben. It is uh, just a real pleasure to get to see you again here and catch up after a couple of decades. Uh, I am, as you uh, know, teaching these days at Hiram College in Hiram, Ohio. And I teach a lot of courses in American government and politics, other aspects of political science, and uh, even some courses that include uh, one on human happiness for freshmen and uh, flourishing uh, in their lives based on what we know about what makes uh, people happy uh, in their lives. So uh, good to be here with you. Uh, I'm I'm sure you set the bar a bit high there, Ben. So <laughs> that, that might not have been, you know. I believe, I believe. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you and I look forward to our discussion here. Uh, and just <laughs> uh, for our listeners, what I, I guess what I didn't say, but hopefully was conveyed through my very uh, enthusiastic introduction of our guest, is I have always been a history buff. Some might say, you know, a little nervous on the history. I very much believe that if we don't study what has come before, it's just going to come right back around again. We won't even notice. We may even think it's going to be something new. But uh, studying under uh, Dr. Bradabow gave me brought a lot of those stories to life right so um uh that's that's just very heartfelt i appreciate him being here with us today and talking about the constitution 
uh let's just let's let's jump right into it yeah so i think where we can start is how it how we got the constitution briefly and the goal of the constitution and maybe a little bit of the structure or non-structure since a lot of it may not be as detailed as people think and what it actually specifies um, versus what we think it specifies yeah absolutely so i will try to be concise and and get right at it here Um, the young united states had of course emerged by seceding from Great Britain. It decided it did not wish to be a part of the British Empire any longer. It fought a war of independence, and then it had to build some sort of a governing charter, some sort of a governing system. Its first attempt at a new constitution was the Articles of Confederation, which were, forgive me, an absolute dumpster fire of a governing document. (laughs) Uh, There was no effective national government with any effective national powers, and we did not have, for example, a three-branch system of government. We did not have an independent judiciary. We did not even have an independent executive. We only had a one-house Congress, and pretty much to the extent there were powers on the national level of government, they were vested in this Congress which often took a supermajority to pass anything instead of a simple majority. So the Articles of Confederation were dysfunctional. They started to uh, flame out and fall apart. And the framers who had built it, including one Mr. James Madison, one of the great American minds and the father of what we have now as our constitution, realized that we had to try to do this all over again. There were attempts at the Mount Vernon Conference between Maryland and Virginia in 1785. A year later, in 1786, at the Annapolis Conference, to try to reform the Articles of Confederation, but these came to not much. And so heading into the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, there was a consensus that we had to start fresh. We had to start with a new governing framework and build a new constitution. The constitution that was worked on that summer and was largely drafted, but without a Bill of Rights by September of that year, is the document that we have today with 27 amendments to it in its history. It is called the world's oldest written constitution that is still in effect, right? We are the world's oldest continuously functioning republic under one constitution. That is a valuable point as far as it goes, but I think it's fundamentally flawed. And here is what I want to say about that. We fought a great civil war to end the institution of slavery, and we passed the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. The 13th, which got rid of, abolished the institution of slavery. The 14th, which provided for equal protection and due process under law, and then also the 15th Amendment, which made it possible for non-white males 21 and over to be legally protected with the power to vote. Now, the reason I elaborate on those Reconstruction Amendments is because if you really think about what happened, 
we don't have the same constitution we started with. We fundamentally altered it as a result of a great civil war. We kind of did a do-over and created another constitution again. If you jump forward to the 20th century, I think you can make a similar argument that during the New Deal of the 1930s under Franklin Roosevelt, the expansion of the Commerce Clause power, we essentially reinvented the Constitution again in a way that would make it possible in 1964 to pass the Civil Rights Act, in 1965 to pass a Voting Rights Act. So I think when people say, well, we have the same constitution that we had at the beginning, that's not really true. We have fundamentally altered it in key respects. Yes, the three branch structure of government is there and it is there in its fundamentals as it was. And yes, we have federalism, a system of two levels. We have a national government and then we have sovereign state governments that do mostly other different functions of governing. But to say that the Constitution, as we understand and apply it today, really is as it was understood coming out of the Constitutional Convention, I think that's an overstatement. We have had a couple of revolutionary watershed periods of change where the Constitution has adapted and emerged different than it was before those fundamental periods of change. So can you elaborate a little bit on what is what was the goal of the Constitution and what what in the Constitution is actually so I'm trying to get my my goal in this question is I'm trying to get to what is actually in the Constitution, what was the goal and like not the you know and try to really understand so that we're not just saying it's unconstitutional it's constitutional it's unco like i, I want to know kind of what is that what was the goal and how was it structured to reach that goal to some degree obviously we can't go into the entire document but obviously it was general enough while still specific in certain areas so i guess that's my question is where was it general how you know like that type of structure of it yeah, so this is among the most difficult questions to answer. Yeah. Uh, and the reason it is so difficult is because really you need to take a two semester sequence of constitutional law classes to answer that question. Mm. The first is governmental powers and the federal system. The second is civil liberties and civil rights. And if at the end of that year of those two courses, um, a student has done good work, then there's a sense of what the answers to, to that most fundamental question really are. So I'm gonna kind of tailor and limit my comments here and then see where you wanna go with follow-up questions. The purpose of the constitution was to knit together the states that had emerged former colonies, now states, independent states. It was to knit them together into an effective and functioning country. That was the first priority. An equal priority was to create a governing system that would preserve small d democracy and that would preserve the rights of people under that governing document. Now, again, let us be frank, what did that mean? It meant white men 21 and over who owned property. Okay. That's a pretty small slice of the total American populace. People forget 
that in states like New York, for example, you had to show you had silver on deposit in a bank box before you would be allowed to vote in those early years. Uh, Virginia even tried to have an approved religions list of, I think, something like 11 faith traditions. And if you didn't have one of those, well, Virginia insisted you really weren't going to be eligible to vote. Now, we would find such restrictions today inappropriate and laughable. And yes, we would call them unconstitutional. How did they become unconstitutional? Well, through a whole series of acts of Congress and through interpretations in cases by the Supreme Court of the United States. To the other part of your question, constitutions are very general documents. They put in place an infrastructure. They put in place big components and a system. Sometimes there are oddly specific things in the Constitution of the United States. For instance, we do not allow in this country as a legal matter titles of nobility, right? You cannot be a duke or a prince or a viscount or whatever else. You can't be. It's not allowed. That's oddly specific. We believed on the basis of the European experience that this would create false class differences on the basis of elite titles, and it would not be something that would be allowed. One example of a very significant power that was not included in the Articles of Confederation that was included and is a part of the Constitution is the power of the federal government to regulate interstate commerce. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, was determined to have that in the Constitution because he believed it was a very significant source of power for the national government to be able to be the official regulator of commerce flowing across state borders. We had, uh, under the Articles of Confederation, uh, multiple currencies, and we had to go through uh, outposts in crossing state borders to pay taxes for crossing a state line in many instances. This created an economic system that was not interwoven, not integrated, not efficient, not even fair. And so an example of a very formidable power is that commerce power that was given to the national government under the Constitution. Now, what would that mean in practice? Well, it would take a whole century and a half of Supreme Court cases to figure that out. It would take laws passed by Congress to figure that out. And indeed, a very big section of a con law one course on governmental powers in the federal system is what can you regulate through the commerce power and what can't you regulate through the commerce power? How far does that commerce power extend? What does it mean, right? So in saying all of that, my purpose is not to be, be evasive or to avoid answering your question. It's to say, although we would think there would be simple answers to a question like that, they're almost never simple answers to a question like that. What is constitutional or what is unconstitutional is not writ on most matters in stone for all time and carved in a tablet. It is capable of changing as a country changes its laws and changes its interpretations of those laws over time. I knew it was a big question, so... <laughs> one of the biggest right well yeah and that that's that's a lot but those which the last part that you just said the changes the laws article one the legislature and congress 
and the interpretation of those laws, which is Article 3, Article 3, the judiciary. So, you know, about the courts. So they just, it just creates that framework because overall, right, under the Article of, and right, Doc, if, if the Articles of Confederation allowed for strong decentralized states that if they were on equal footing, the object of this game was to have somebody over them not take away too much of that power, but definitely have, you know, someone for the states that could resolve disputes because they weren't getting done via the Articles of Confederation. You were just having these problems. It was like little countries dealing with each other. And, and we want, we wanted to not. So we, we, Especially uh, if they had their own money, like right. they really were like right. little countries. Absolutely. Right. right. And so I think one way to think about that period of time under the troubled Articles of Confederation is that if, for example, another country wanted to have a treaty with the United States, it could not pass that through the One House Congress of the United States and have it bind all of the states. It had to go to 13 different states and negotiate the same instrument separately. Now, what country could possibly negotiate 13 separate instruments to achieve one thing with the United States of America. It was just unrealistic, inefficient, and ineffective. There was also the question, too, of whether the states would hang together or whether they would simply divide back up, whether there would be rebellions breaking out around the country and then the European powers could step back in and re-seize, reoccupy portions of North America. Uh, George Washington, first president during his term, helped to put down the Whiskey Rebellion in Western Pennsylvania, for example. And so this was a time at which there was not a steady hand looking out for the national interest binding the states together, governing the American people as though they were a single people instead of 13 separate peoples residing in states that touched upon one another. Yeah. I mean, and if you look at our, where we are today, you could see that without that bond, without that overarching, we, yeah, we would we would definitely be going this way and that way and up and down and left and right. And we would not all uh, walk the same way. We somehow we need, we all needed to be tied together to form a bundle of sticks. So we didn't get snapped up like, like individual sticks and the constitution ties us all together. Uh, I think creates was, a framework that we ties. We're all tied together by. I think that was very nicely put, and we would have become kindling for somebody else's nefarious purposes without the unity that we needed to have. There's something else that I'm thinking about here in light of the questions that you both have asked about this material, and that is that really, if you look at the enumerated powers of Article I of the United States Constitution, right, and Article I, again, the first branch, the legislative branch, the House and the Senate, it is a vast, breathtaking, sweeping array of powers for the national government. 
And then there is the so-called elastic clause, the necessary and proper clause, which says not only does the national government have all of these powers, but it has any other powers that are necessary and proper for the carrying out of the itemized powers of Article One. Now, I'm going to just state to you that most Americans have no idea what's on that list of those enumerated powers. And they'll say, well, the government can't do that. And you can say, no, actually, it sure as hell can. <laughs> look at Article One and look at the enumerated powers that the framers of the Constitution, whom you claim to revere, were certain had to be included in that list. And that, I think, is one of the real important basic sounds Americans ought to have, what are the enumerated powers of Article 1? What can the government do according to those powers? That's a good place, I think, for Americans to begin to refresh their sense of what the role of government is in the American Republic. Ooh, that's awesome. That is great. Well, that's good. Any thought to that, Kate? Like, uh, I think the one that most people, the, the populace, would know about is Congress has the power to declare war. Like, I feel like that's that's the one everybody knows. Uh, we hear a lot about the, you know, the IRS this and income tax that. And, you know, it's, it's unconstitutional. An income tax is unconstitutional. Well, true. It's not an income tax. is not listed in the Constitution. And the ability to tax, to, to, to raise revenue is in the Constitution. However, that happens. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that because I think that's really important as an example of what Americans think they know about the Constitution versus what the Constitution really says. So the Constitution did forbid in its original form what it called a head tax, which we would call today an income tax. But during the Woodrow Wilson administration, we amended the Constitution to explicitly provide for an income tax to be a kind of tax that the federal government could have. And it has had that power since we amended the constitution at the early part of the 20th century, right? Now, had we not done that, where would government get the money to function? Where would it have the revenue to provide for the national defense and a social- Donations. <laughs> Pretty much. Donations. Where would it provide a social safety net, the national parks, and a hundred other things that government does that we all touch upon every day in the conduct of our lives? Well, it's very hard to say how government would have the wherewithal to get that revenue. Now, there's another thing about taxation that I want to say, and it is a fundamental misunderstanding of the American Revolution and of the circumstances that led up to the uh, framing of our Constitution that we still have in its much modified form. You hear people say, well, you know, the American Revolution was an anti-tax revolution, right? That's both kind of true, but not really true. The rallying cry of the American Revolution was no taxation without representation, right? The beef was that London, uh, the uh, heart of the empire, the British system was taxing colonists, but that we had no say and no participation in how much and what kind of taxes we paid. Now, why is that so important? Because as soon as the revolution happened, 
and we had states instead of colonies, they voted to tax themselves way more heavily than they'd ever been taxed by the British crown. That's important because it indicates that the point wasn't, we don't wanna pay taxes. It was that we wanna make the laws that tax ourselves and we want to be involved in the decisions about how and how much to tax ourselves. But I think it's really important to understand this wasn't at the very beginning, popularly as it's described, an anti-tax country. Americans tax themselves way more heavily after the revolution to build a country and to begin to have a national government of their own than they had ever experienced under the British system of taxation. Mm. So, you know, this notion that quote unquote taxation is somehow either incompatible with American identity or that it's, you know, unconstitutional or any of that. No, not at all. That's just not true. Okay. I have a question and it's going to move us (laughs) forward. So Ben, if you have something you want to touch on first. Okay. First of all, I didn't realize that about Woodrow Wilson. So if you had seen me on video, my mind was literally on my face being blown, but you brought up a point that I thought was interesting inside of like the context at the time of why they tax themselves so high, but this could be any type of system, you know, that we're talking about. We're just using tax as an example. Going forward, though, bringing it to now, at what point, um, whether it's taxation and how much we're being taxed now there's so many this is relevant my point on a lot of different levels or different systems how do we go from we were heavily taxed because we were a new system or this was how it was going at that time for that reason have we actually moved that dial to be relevant for where we are today are we still on that heavily taxed system are we still on that pick whatever or did we actually like move it to today where maybe we don't need to be taxed as much maybe there should be other reforms that aren't tax reforms because maybe the government's gotten too big or too small or too this or too that so just moving it forward because eventually i want to get to future like moving it forward how that influenced or how it was structured before I feel like we've gotten to a point maybe that it's a little bit more difficult to change that dial a little bit and our structures and everything else, or we're in that habit or that pattern so much that like how, what is, what does that look like now and have we changed or are we still under that model? I was really long, but I, I hopefully I built the world of what I'm trying to ask. So I think there are, Uh, several really important things in what you're asking about here. And I think it's worth our while to talk about them uh, um, a little bit at a time. Here's where I will start. The United States is an undertaxed, very lightly taxed country that just doesn't pay much in taxes, right? So compare us to the rest of our democratic peers in the developed Western democracies. We have very low rates of taxation, right? We keep company in terms of the percentage of our gross national product that goes to taxes with countries like Turkey and Mexico, not Germany 
or New Zealand or Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, uh, pick your others, or even France or the United Kingdom for that example, right? So we're a very lightly taxed country by any stretch. The second thing that I think it's important to say is that we used to have fairly high taxation rates on rich people in this country for a great portion of the 20th century. From the time that we create an income tax under Woodrow Wilson up through the New Deal out of the 1930s after the Second World War through the 50s, the highest tax bracket up until the tax cuts of 1964 was 79% on the highest tax bracket. Okay, that was cut dramatically in 1964, but it's really the Reagan tax cuts of 1981 where we start to have the upper income tax bracket, the highest tax bracket in the upper 30s. Okay, now it has fallen and then gone back up, fallen and then gone back up, and we move it a couple percentage points in the 30s, but we have become a very low tax country now. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that we are afraid to tax the people who make the most money very heavily because we all nourish a fantasy that we might become very rich someday. And if we were to become very rich, well, we wouldn't want to pay a really high rate in taxes. Now, statistically, none of us are going to become that rich, right? That's a very rare thing that happens to people. But it also means that we have created a dynamic in the way that our government functions that we don't have basic things like other people in Western democracies have. We don't have universal access to healthcare, pardon me, from the moment we're born for our entire lives. We don't have college tuition paid for our kids instead of taking out loans and going into debt to pay for it because we think, well, it'd be nifty to have lower rates of overall taxation. So we have this libertarian strain in our politics that seems to equate taxation or lack of taxation rather with being freer somehow. And I guess I would wanna challenge the fundamental proposition. Are we freer because we get to go into debt to pay for college? Are we freer because we don't have really good budgets for our national park system? Are we freer because we're the only country in the Western world that doesn't have universal access, access rather for our entire lives to healthcare, right? So that's, that's one level of commentary that I wanna make. But I think there's something else we have to talk about here, too, and it's really important to this discussion. Americans don't realize that most government employees are not federal government employees. By the several millions more, most government employees in this country are state and local government employees. And the number of people employed by state and local governments in this country is a multiple of several times more than the total number of employees in the federal government of the United States, which is not much bigger than it was under Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s, all right? So where are government employees residing in this country? State, local, county governments. So this notion that there is this big bloated federal government, if only we could hack it apart or cut it back, somehow we control spending, 
That is a myth. I would also argue that it's a myth that we are all better off for being a low tax country. I think it only takes a little travel in some of our peer Western democracies to see that at the end of the day, you kind of get what you pay for. And if you're afraid to pay taxes, you don't get much. We don't get much. If you're not afraid to pay taxes, you can get really good infrastructure, plus access to college, plus medical care, plus a bunch of other things that we don't really even today have in our country. That's interesting. So I think that brings up a point which is more of a rhetorical point since I want to make sure we get to some more constitutional stuff, but that maybe the the taxes aren't the problem. Maybe the other economic areas like wages and things like that could be something to look at potentially. So do you have any thoughts, Ben? Or, I mean, I want to make sure we get to the future. We've kind of talked briefly about well, how we got here. I mean, I, I always have thoughts, but uh, no, 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 not, not about this. I, I think that was uh, very enlightening. I wasn't, I, I didn't know a lot of that. So thank you, to, uh, Dr. Bradabo. I appreciate it. Um, sure. No, Absolutely. yeah, let's, let's go ahead and keep going. So if I could make one comment on something that Kate just raised, it was a question of, you know, wages. Hmm. We are different than a lot of other Western democracies about how we think of a national minimum wage and what we think it should accomplish. If you work in a restaurant in Australia or in New Zealand, your minimum wage is going to be way in the upper teens of our dollars, approaching 20 bucks. So you may work 40 or more hours a week in a restaurant, but not only could you pay rent on a teeny apartment in Sydney, Australia, so that you're able to live on your own and have a roof over your head, but you are also a mandatory participant in a national retirement system. And so you must make, I think it's either a 14 or a 17% contribution that is matched by a 14 or 17% contribution by the national government. Imagine someone's situation here with our very low minimum wage and no retirement of any kind compared to workers in Australia or New Zealand who make a high minimum wage and have a very big pension contribution across their entire lives. That's something I think really important uh, to think about when we talk about how we structure wages and benefits in a country. So relating that back to the constitution, I guess I would say, and going forward, since I, you know, I wanna make sure we're conscious of time, what would you say that I mean, I could hear a lot of people in my head say what you just said is constitutional, unconstitutional, wrong, whatever, right? So I guess my question is going forward with the Constitution. I don't know if this makes sense. I'm I'm kind of creating it as I'm talking. What do you see going forward, both maybe granularly and that type of stuff, but also bigger of the future of the U.S.? Um, do you see a number of amendments happening for the Constitution inside of issues that are happening or that are arising? Like, where are we going forward? And Ben, do you know what I'm trying to get at 
maybe help? Uh, I, I will blend it with my question that I, that right. I really want to ask, right? Like in the future, Doc, is it time for another constitutional conver- uh, convention? Like, yeah. I mean, we, you know, maybe we resolve to have one every hundred years or so or whatever, but like incorporating the new stuff and what you were talking about before is that our founders had, you know, uh, ahead of their time was like 80, 100 years, we're past that. Is it time to really get the states, get everybody, hey, everybody look, there's an event, it's over in, I don't know if Philly's the right choice this time, but you know, you know what I mean? Uh, City of Brotherly Love-ish? I mean, it's got Rocky. Anyway, <laughs> um, should we should we have another conver- you know, constitutional conversation uh, in your experience? Have you heard people bring that up before. I really love it if I was the first person to say that, but if not, you know, let's, let's talk about it. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you brought this up uh, because a number of things we've talked about today have indicated, you know, the Republic's feeling a little long in the tooth these days. It's not really very vital seeming, very quick to address its problems, very creative in its thinking. It feels like it's sort of trapped in a bit of malaise and mediocrity and everything else. Well, that may be so, but it's not by accident. It's because we were given this uh, 1787 horse and buggy, and here we are trying to move it or across space and time and interstate highways and every mode that has developed since then. And the fact is it has its time-bound limitations. Now, there have been calls even for several decades now to have a constitutional convention uh, to try to call one. And the Constitution says that you can call an amendment Uh, convention, right, as opposed to introducing them through the House and the Senate and then sending them to the states, you could have a a constitutional convention. Here's my concern, a potential concern about that. Uh, It is entirely possible, you can imagine, given human nature and particularly the nature of American politics and of Americans these days, that we might at a constitutional convention get rid of all the good stuff and add a lot of bad stuff and come out the other side in worse shape. Um, It is conceivable that the loudest, least educated, least thoughtful voices would carry the day at a convention, unlike the very measured, intelligent, thoughtful voices that were uniquely present at a convention in 1787. So, there's no guarantee that a constitutional convention were to be called would get us where we want to go. Now, I want to elaborate on that and suggest something. If we are headed for an era in which the Senate can't function because, well, it's built not to function and the modern creation of the filibuster made it even worse. If we are going to have every so often uh, a white supremacist president picked by the electoral college who comes in and spends four years trying to blow up the government of the United States, 
to me, it is eminently feasible and possible that there will be a debate in California, Washington, and Oregon about, do we want to be part of this anymore? Or do we want to be a Pacific Coast Republic, right? Um, there is, of course, already a, a background in California to the Cal exit conversation that's been had over a period of a couple decades. Should California be its own country? Well, it certainly could, right? It would be like, what, the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. I guess what I'm trying to get at there is as hard as it is to envision a constitutional convention functioning in an effective way and making things better by reforming the structures of the United States government, it is less difficult for me to imagine at some point a series of movements in this country that get at the proposition that a sprawling continental republic of 330 some million people is no longer governable, but that parts of it wish to try to govern themselves. Now, I realize that that is like an incendiary thing to say, but it is not an impossibility. Do I think that California, Washington, and Oregon could create a parliamentary republic that would probably govern itself really well? I kind of think it's not impossible. I think it could, but there are bigger questions. Would we allow secession? Would the United States allow states to decide by referendum to remove themselves? Well, we've been down that road before, and that was not a particularly good road to be on for a period of time. Now. What happens if New England uh, becomes a functioning entity and the West Coast becomes a functioning entity and perhaps Arizona uh, trends toward it and joins it, right, or whatever? Where does that leave what people very negatively refer to as the middle of the country where I grew up in a state like Iowa, flyover territory? Where does that leave those states? Right, If they are separated from the economic engines of the country that produce all the wealth, the Californias and the New Yorks and the Texas uh, and a, a Floridas and a few others, right? Mm. Um, where does that leave those states that don't neatly and nicely fit into any defined block of states that would seek to become their own country? It's very hard to tell. It's very hard to predict. So there are two scenarios. Let me add a third. Maybe a third scenario is that this country is swept by a great progressive wave of reform that passes some constitutional amendments, that passes a new Voting Rights Act, uh, that changes the makeup of the Supreme Court, and that over time, this country rises to challenges as it did in the 1960s with the Civil Rights Act, with the Voting Rights Act, that there is a new set of examples of progressive environmental and health and other legislation passed in certain states, and that that becomes somehow a model for reforming the country overall. That is also not inconceivable. It would not automatically, for instance, have felt in the roaring 1920s like we were going to have a new deal in the 1930s. Right. It would not have been obvious in the 1950s that we were going to have a wave of reform in the great society years right. of the 1960s. So I throw that third scenario out there as perhaps a hopeful one 
uh, it may feel like we're lost and stuck in the doldrums right now. And in fact, we may be, but that doesn't mean it's going to be that way forever. It may be that the country comes along and gets its house in order and passes needed reforms before the Republic really declines in irreversible ways and becomes something that just is not functioning at all anymore. Well, thank you so much. I think that was uh, an interesting, three interesting scenarios um, of what's going forward potentially. So I appreciate not just answering the question, but also kind of creating what you foresee as possible uh, for the future. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's been a great conversation. So thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed this. This was a ton of fun. And I apologize for going on uh, a bit on that last question there. <laughs> no, it was good stuff. No, it was definitely good. good information. We got a we got a few scenarios to chew on, and uh, yeah, let's do it. Cool, excellent. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you today. I really have enjoyed this. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, follow us on social media, and check out our Patreon page. Leave us a review on your listening platform if you like the podcast. If you haven't heard your viewpoint or would like to be a guest, email us at info at artofdiscussing.com. Till next time, remember there's more sides to the story than yours. Look, listen, and learn, and keep Keep discussing. discussing.